Well, good morning, church family. Thank you so much for, uh, for, for being here, whether you're joining us here in person or, or you're online. Uh, we are one church, and we're, we're glad to, to, to be together and look at God's word together. And, you know, the, the last couple weeks, um, I have just been so blessed by, um, by, by the worship team and the songs that they've been picking because we've really been grooving in this like Easter theme for what seems like about two months now um, between some of the themes that we've been looking at in the Advent Hope series at Christmas and then now this month we've been in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, yeah, it feels like we've just been leaving, uh, living in Easter and I, I, I like that. I'm going out with a bang. We have one more Easter sermon today. Uh, and so, so I thought maybe we'd, we'd try to kick off this message with the traditional kind of Easter, Easter greeting, the Easter responsive greeting where I say, he is risen, and you all respond, he is risen indeed. Do you think, do you think we can try that? All right. He is risen. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. He is risen. Uh, and so we have just been camped out there with all of the implications of Easter uh, as we've been working through 1 Corinthians 15, this great chapter at, at, towards the end of this letter that we've been in all year as Paul unpacks the significance of Jesus' resurrection um, for our own future hope. And so we're concluding that today. And so what I'd like us to do is, um, is with your mind's eye, Sort of reflect back to that first Easter morning. That first Easter morning just before dawn. And the stone was still sealed in front of the tomb. I uh, actually found a, found a, a picture here of, uh, of what, a, what a first century. This is a tomb from the first century right outside of Jerusalem. It's not Jesus' tomb, but it's just like it. Um, Easter morning before dawn, that stone was still in front of the tomb. And the platoon of Roman soldiers was on guard outside. And inside, Jesus' corpse lay lifeless where they had placed it on Friday. There, the, the one on the, uh, on, on the right there is, is actually an image from inside, where they would, inside one of these tombs where they placed the body. And on the left is sort of a drawing of what a typical first century Jewish tomb is like. And Jesus' body lay there. His heart did not beat. The wounds in his feet and wrists were congealed. No blood flowed. 36 hours after death is about where we're at Sunday morning. And the stiffness of rigor mortis would have begun to loosen as the muscles in Jesus' body started to break down. Decomposition was beginning. He, he was, in fact, dead. And from that point on, uh, the process of decay accelerates relentlessly. And this is why that Sunday morning, the women who had followed Jesus were on their way back to the tomb to, to hurriedly, to quickly finish the process of burial that they had begun on Friday and had to wrap up quickly. They didn't get to finish it on Friday. Um, and they wanted to finish this now on Sunday before that decomposition took over. And so what they expected to do, the women who were on their way there, what they expected to do was to rewrap Jesus' body in linens and aromatic spices. The process on Friday had been too hurried to truly honor their friend and their rabbi. Um, they had just kind of quickly wrap, wrapped him up, laid the linen cloth on his face, and had left the body. And now the Sabbath was over. They were returning to do it properly. And then they would reseal the tomb and in typical first century Jewish burial practice, they then planned to leave Jesus' body in that tomb for a year. 
And then they would return and place his bones in one of these boxes you can see, these ossuaries. Uh, and they'd put his bones there, and that would be the sort of the permanent burial. And that was the plan. That's what they were planning, at least. And what happened next interrupted those plans and split history. And Jesus' disciple Matthew, who, who traveled with him ever since Jesus called him out of his tax collector booth, Matthew records what happens next. In Matthew chapter 28, it says this, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. He has risen indeed. Come see the place where he lay. And I, my question for us to, to think about, uh, before, before we look at what, at what Paul says as he unpacks this, this climactic history-splitting event, the question I want to, us to think about is, what happened behind that stone at the moment of the earthquake? You know, we, we know and, and we believe, we believe from the testimony of the eyewitnesses who were there, and we believe from the witness of his Holy Spirit to our hearts, that Jesus was resurrected on that first Easter. He rose from the grave. But what exactly does that mean? What do we mean when we say Jesus rose from the dead? Because this, this is a question central to our faith. And yet, I think it's neglected. It's neglected to really stop and linger and say, what happened? What exactly took place? What do we mean when we say Jesus is alive? We usually just say, oh, you know, he came back to life. Yay, he's risen, and leave it there. But in doing so, I think we're in danger of missing much of the significance of Easter. Because if, if you think about it, what happened behind that stone on Easter morning was different than anything that had come before, including other miracles where people were brought back to life. I wonder if you ever pondered this. If you're the kind of person to sit around and wonder, like, huh, you know, Jesus brought other people back to life. Elijah brought people back to life. What's different about Easter? Is there something different about Easter? Because, and in fact, a week or two before Easter... Um, Jesus had performed his probably most spectacular miracle, the raising of his friend Lazarus. Uh, and you might be familiar with this story when uh, this is Jesus' good friend who had died. And when Jesus finally got there, um, Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. And so the decomposition process was much more advanced. This, this guy was, was, was dead, dead. Uh, and when Jesus ordered tomb, Lazarus' tomb opened, in fact, his sister Martha objected. Like, there's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to smell, Jesus. Like, it's, it's too late. We don't want to do that, Jesus. But Jesus insisted. He ordered the tomb opened. And these great words from John eleven forty three. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 
I remember reading somewhere, I couldn't find the, the exact quote, but reading somewhere, um, a, a, a commentator remarked on this, that if Jesus had not specified Lazarus, everyone in the graveyard would have come out, which I think is just a cool thing to think about. But Jesus, Jesus speaking to the dead man, Lazarus, come out. And with those words, a spectacular miracle. I mean, a, a million miracles happen at once as death starts working backwards, the decay and decomposition reversed, Lazarus's putrefying body puts itself back together, every cell reforms, life re-enters his body, and it says, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped in a cloth, he's all wrapped up just like, the, just like Jesus is going to be two weeks later. And Jesus said to them, unbind him, let him go. It was a spectacular miracle. And yet, what happened on Easter morning was something completely different. Because for a couple reasons for this. I want us to linger here because Paul is going to be unpacking this in 1 Corinthians. That what happened on Easter was categorically different than what happened to Lazarus or any of the other people who have been raised from the dead. First of all, Lazarus's revival um, was only temporary, right? Lazarus, bummer for Lazarus. Lazarus died twice. <laughs> Some, someday, probably years later, as an old man, Lazarus died again. And yet Jesus' resurrection, we know, was qualitatively different. Romans 6.9 says this. It says, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. This was a different kind of event. This raised from the dead was different than Lazarus. Lazarus was called back into life, but Lazarus rose into a world still under the dominion of death. And Lazarus' body was still subject to death. And so he died again. But Jesus resurrection ushered in a different reality than Lazarus's. Jesus rose on the other side of death's dominion. His resurrected body now free forever from the curse that drags each one of us back down to the grave. And Hebrews 7:16 says that Jesus now reigns by the power of an indestructible life. Something different happened on Easter. And, you know, there are, even when you look at the accounts of the resurrection, the eyewitness accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, the, the details that emerge there point us to this fact, suggest that something massively different is happening in this tomb as the earth shakes. Um, even a little detail about, about the, the grave clothes. You know, Lazarus' grave clothes, have how uh, Jesus wakes him up and Lazarus comes like stumbling out all, all wrapped up. He's probably confused, like what in the world's going on? Uh, and he had to be extricated from the bandages. Uh, but not Jesus. John, uh, John records it this way. John, who was actually there in the tomb, saw this. Uh, John says, Simon Peter came following John and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. What Peter and John found was the linen cloths lay right where they had bound Jesus, right in that, that, that picture of the kind of hollowed out place for the body, the linen cloths there. It was almost as if Jesus' body was somehow transported through and out of the grave clothes. 
and then Jesus folds up his face cloth and walks out. Something different happened here. This was no mere resuscitation of a corpse. Uh, perhaps, perhaps the best way to describe it is um, biblical scholars try to kind of come up with language to see, like, to figure out what happened here. This is different. It's almost as if in that moment of resurrection that Jesus' dead body was reconstituted or recreated. Jesus' body recreated into an indestructible new body that was the same and yet different than what had been before. It's what, scho- what scholar N.T. Wright, who wrote this massive book on the resurrection of the Son of God, he calls Jesus' transphysical existence. Uh, that Jesus, no longer subject to the limitations of this fallen world, he was the same, and yet he was somehow different. And as you read the eyewitness accounts, I think that much becomes clear uh, as, as Jesus appears to people after the resurrection. In, in Luke, Luke 24, when he, uh, he crashes his disciples' funeral party, and they're all behind locked doors wondering what's going, what's going on, Jesus appears, and he says, see my hands and my feet. It is I myself. It's like Jesus, like, it, it's me. This is still me. And it's a physical body. Touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, I love this. He said, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. I think probably just to, to, to confirm, he's like, like, ghosts don't eat can't touch a ghost. Like, I am real. I am alive. I have flesh and bones. He had a physical body. He said to Thomas a week later, he said, touch my wounds. He said, put your hand right here where they put the spear. He eats and drinks. In John 21, he makes the disciples breakfast. In Luke 24, he has dinner with the two friends on the road to Emmaus. And yet something is different now because he walks through locked doors. (laughs) He appears and disappears. His friends even often seem to not recognize him and then recognize him as if he is the same and yet somehow different. And so Jesus' body rising from the dead was different than Lazarus, different than any of the other ones. This was not just the resuscitation of a corpse. This was the new creation breaking into the old one. This was, this was the first act, if you will, of recreation, of the new heavens and new earth bursting into existence in that garden tomb. As, G, as Jesus, the, the old creation body, subject to decay just like the rest of ours, is transformed into something different. And so if we were to summarize what Jesus' resurrection was, maybe we could put it this way that Jesus was raised bodily. Not just the spirit, not just floating off to heaven. He was raised bodily with indestructible glory, the first act of the new creation. When you read in Revelation 21 of the new heavens and new earth, no longer subject to death and the curse and nothing sad or no mourning or crying or death or pain anymore, that started on Easter. That started in the garden tomb on Easter with Jesus' resurrection body. 
So why are we lingering on these details, on questions that maybe you've wondered about, but maybe it's never crossed your mind to ponder what, what exactly happened with Jesus' body? Why are we lingering on these details? It's because our passage that we're going to look at in 1 Corinthians, and don't worry, we're going to move quickly through this passage, is because it's all about this. And the, Paul's whole point in 1 Corinthians 15, is that we will share Jesus' resurrection. What happened to Jesus on Easter will happen to us at his return. That's the whole point of the chapter. And this is, if you've been, if you've been here with us in these past weeks, it's almost, these messages all kind of fit together because Paul has this just one big thought to communicate in chapter 15. We've seen Jesus is the head of a new humanity, We've been united to him in his death and resurrection. He's the first fruits of the resurrection, the first domino, the proof that the whole resurrection is coming behind him. And the New Testament talks about this a lot, way more than, than we seem to. Uh, Romans 6, 5 says this, says, If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If, if I, by faith in Jesus, am united to him so that what he has done counts for me, which is, which is by the way, is how I get saved. That, that's, there's no way for me to like clean up my act to somehow get into heaven. It's that Jesus has done it for me, and by faith, he takes hold of me and says, what I've done counts for you. And if his death has counted for me, if his blood has been applied to my sins, has forgiven me, then Paul says, certainly I'll be united with him in the same resurrection like his. And Philippians 3 says it even more crystal clear. It says that, that we await the, our hope, our final hope, is Jesus coming back and he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even to subject all things to himself. The one who reigns is coming back to make us new. And we will share his resurrection. This is the incredible truth that Paul turns us to in the last section of chapter 15 as he brings this letter, this long letter to the Corinthians to a close. This is the end goal of Easter. The end goal is that Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. We share Jesus' resurrection. In the end, Easter comes for us. And so if you have a Bible now, open up to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, and we're picking up here in verse 35. As Paul, Paul's been sort of answering some objections, clarifying things that the Corinthians were getting wrong, and he does the same thing here. Uh, and this, this whole paragraph basically just boils down to an illustration Paul is making that our resurrection bodies, when Jesus returns, will be a major upgrade. Kind of boils down to that. Paul says this. He says, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And Paul responds, you foolish person, which hurt my feelings at first because I kind of want to know the answer too. <laughs> uh, but uh, he's, he's not sh shouting down the question. Uh, he's responding to a sarcastic objection to the, the, the naysayers, the skeptics. are like, oh, you're resurrected. What kind of body are you going to have? That's just nonsense. And he, that's what he's shutting down. He's not shutting down the actual faith-filled curiosity of saying, what is this hope that I have because of Easter? Because that's what he's going to answer. And he says, he gives this illustration. 
He says, what you sow, picture a farmer scattering seeds. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, to each kind of seed its own body. So the, the picture is, you, know, you plant a seed, it looks like this, and something entirely different comes up from the ground. And he goes on, and the illustration just sort of continues of, of there's different kinds of things. He's just pointing out that he's, he's like, just because we're talking the resurrection of the body doesn't mean that you're just walking, that Jesus is walking out of there with the same old flesh and blood doesn't mean you will either. He says, not all flesh is the same. There's one for humans, one for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one kind, the glory of the earthly is another kind. There is one glory of the sun, another of the moon, another glory of the stars. Star differs from star in glory, and then he says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. So again, what he, what he means, what all this simply boils down to is for us saying, okay, if I'm going to share Jesus resurrection, Paul, what does that mean? What does that look like? What does that mean for me, for this physical existence? And Paul's answer is, it's a major upgrade. It's from one kind of glory into something far different. And, and the example he gives here that, uh, that I, I like the most, that resonates with me most, is this image of a seed being planted. And he says, you know, what you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. It's, it's this picture of burial. If you've ever planted a seed, you bury it in the ground and you cover it up. Every, every garden planting in the spring is a little funeral acted out as you cover up that seed and commit it to the earth. But you're committing it in hope that something's going to happen. And that that seed turns into something which was there all along and yet is now completely different. The glory of the seed into, into the tree, into the plant, into the flower, into the whatever, whatever you're planting. You know, I, um, in the back of my car, I don't actually know why this was in my car. One of my kids <laughs> brought it in as a pine cone. You know pine cones. And this is what the seed, it contains the seeds of, of evergreen trees. Uh, go to the, 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 picture, the picture here. This turns into that. In God's sort of mysterious way of setting up the natural world to work, pine cones turn into redwoods by falling to the ground, being buried. Pine cones turn into redwoods. And this is the picture that Paul is, is giving of what is your hope, Christian? You stand on the resurrection, say Jesus is alive. What is the hope? The hope is that you a pine cone will one day be a redwood. This is what resurrection means. It doesn't just mean you dig up the pine cone. <laughs> it means a transformation of what Philippians says, that, that Jesus, by his, his in, infinite power, will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. We will share his glory, the same indestructible life he has within himself, we will share 
And I think that's, on one hand, an awesome picture of hope to hold on to. And I also love this image because this is a perspective shift. Every once in a while, the Bible just hits you with a perspective shift. This is one of them. Because it means your whole life in this world is a pine cone. Everything that you love, everything you have done, all of your memories, all of your hopes and dreams and experiences and everything is just the seed, which can hardly even begin to be compared with the greatness that is on the other side of that burial. What a perspective shift. We tend to think of this life as this is, this is life. And then, you know, maybe there's something after. I, I like what Randy Alcorn says in his, his book on, on heaven. He says, he says this. He said, it would be more accurate to call our present existence the before life rather than what follows the afterlife. This is the massive perspective shift that Jesus' resurrection brings. What comes next is such transformation, such glory and power that it puts all of our life into perspective as a blip, a dot, a seed, the before life. And so the Bible's call and response is to live like that's true. That live, live like what matters is the tree. And spend your little blip and your little seed on what counts for eternity. And so Paul continues. He says, he says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What was sown is perishable. We, we fall apart. We, we break. We spoil like milk. We are perishable. What is raised is imperishable, indestructible. It is sown in dishonor. We're, we're, a, we're a mess, and we fall apart morally and physically. It is raised in glory. This seed of our lives is sown in weakness. I know, aren't there just some days that you feel that? You feel the weakness, even as you haven't, you haven't even gone in the ground yet, and yet you feel weak. It is raised in power. There's a transformation coming. This transformation from perishable dishonor, weakness into imperishable, glorious power. Uh, the Daniel, in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus, describes it this way in his vision. He says, Many who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Or as Jesus simply put in one of his parables, that at, the, at, at the end, when all is said and done, we will shine like stars in the kingdom of our Father. There is a glory coming that is indescribable compared to what we experience now. Paul continues. He says that, that 
in this transformation, what is sown, what we've got now is a natural body that just is subject to this natural world, this unnatural world, maybe is better said, of decay and death and suffering and pain. He says, it has raised a spiritual body. That doesn't mean, that doesn't mean as we're so often quick to do in, our, in I think, our culture, that doesn't mean that our resurrection existence is, is like a, as a spirit floating around, a disembodied existence on a cloud. That's not what the word spiritual there means. Uh, it, it's, it's actually a specific word Paul is using. Uh, and uh, biblical scholar Andrew Lincoln, he writes this on the next slide. He says, by the term spiritual, we must not understand this to mean non-material or non-physical, but that it is a way of describing a bodily existence that is fully energized by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit fully indwelling us, empowered with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, alive in us. Now we just get a little glimpse. And if you've walked with Jesus, you, you have tasted little glimpses of this spiritual life, of being caught up in moments of worship, of being used powerfully by God for someone else's good, for seeing, for the Holy Spirit opening his word to you and you see something that makes your heart burn within you. And you you've tasted these little glimpses as that resurrection life is working its way through the nooks and crannies of our natural bodies. But one day, Paul says, we get that in its fullness. We get the face-to-face -face experience we get everything that our hearts in this broken world long for. That's what he means when he says what is raised is a spiritual body, a spirit-filled, spirit-empowered body, one with Jesus, what we have longed for. He says, thus it is written. He goes back to what we saw last week about the, the two humanities, the first Adam and Jesus, the second Adam. He says, thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being, and the last Adam, a life-giving spirit, his Holy Spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. If you wonder why those tastes of glory seem so small, why God can seem so distant, why the Christian life can be so hard, it's because the broken natural world comes first. And what you're really longing for is on the other side of resurrection. He says this, the first man was from earth, a man of dust. That's Adam, and that's all of us in Adam, formed from the dust, and we are made from the dust, and to dust we return. The second man is, of, is from heaven. And as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. That's all of us. We're just born of dust and go back to it. But in the same way, if you're in Christ, if you've put your faith in Jesus, now so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, just, just as we have this natural broken body and broken heart that runs away from God and sins and rebels and our bodies and our minds and our hearts all fall apart because we're in Adam. So if you've put your faith in Jesus, we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. We will be like him. This is our great hope. And so whatever this morning, Christian, you are struggling with, 
I have sort of good news and bad news. Whatever weakness you have brought in here, we've all brought in lots of weakness. Whatever sin you are struggling with, whatever pain and addiction, whatever loss and heartache, and I think I've covered everyone in the room to some extent, there is resurrection power now by his spirit living in us. But many of us are going to take that, those struggles to the grave. But here's the good news. I love how D.A. Carson put this. He said, I'm not suffering from anything a good resurrection can't fix. <laughs> you are not suffering from anything, Christian, that a good resurrection can't fix and won't fix and will fix. There is resurrection on the other side of the dust and ashes. This is the hope that we hold on to as followers of Jesus. He is alive, and one day we will be too. And so Paul tells us that the final goal of Easter, in the end, the new creation that began in the garden tomb comes for us says this in verse 50. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body put, must put on immortality. This, this then is the great end of the story to which all of history is building. And it's the, in fact the end of the story that came early on Easter. That we are living in the little thread of the, the good of that end of the story now. As Jesus' spirit begins to raise our dead hearts from the grave, yet one day that resurrection comes for us in its fullness. The trumpet sounds. Jesus returns. The dead rise, transformed into his glorious image by the same power that raised him from the, the grave. The new creation overriding the old. Jesus' resurrection becomes our resurrection all things made new. This is our hope, Christian. And if you have not put your faith in Jesus, oh, can I just implore you? This, this is the hope held out to all who will put their faith in Jesus and say, I need a savior like that. I need someone to rescue me like that. I need a, a strong foundation of hope like that. He is a big enough savior to save you from your sin, to save you from the mess you have made of your life, the ways you have rebelled against him. He took it all on the cross so that if you would just say, Jesus, I need you as a savior, you will find in him everything you need and everything that on that day you will need. This is our hope. And then he says this, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, the saying that is, was echoed in two of the three songs that we sang this morning. I love it. Death is swallowed up in victory. 
O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And on that day, it will be nowhere to be found. Death's victory will be rolled back permanently. Death's sting plucked out and extinguished forever. Death will die and Jesus will win. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? If I can have the the worship team uh, come come back up. Um, This, I I have really just personally, as we have marinated in these resurrection truths these last two months, uh, it has been a fresh balm um, to my soul uh, because uh, my family is still still dealing with and processing um, the the grief uh, grief and loss that we experienced this this past summer um, when my uh, my two year old niece uh, named Emery um, suddenly passed away. Um, this is this is Emery. Um, it was a sudden unexpected thing that left our family um, reeling. It just happened in a moment. Um, and uh, and my, my family, and especially Sarah's family, is still processing through this. Uh, and what I keep coming back to again and again and again is resurrection, is Easter. And these words in 1 Corinthians that when you experience a, a loss, when you experience really the brokenness of the unnatural world, freshly lights your hope for what God has promised um, and the, the day after um, the day after Emery's funeral this past summer, um, I I sat down and I wrote something. Um, they're sort of out of the the raw ponderings, uh, and I, I'd like to read it to you. Uh, this is sort of my my own thoughts coming together uh, in the the aftermath of the funeral. This is this is what I wrote. Damn you, death. Sorry. (laughs) Damn you, death. Those were the stunned, angry words going through my mind, a mind bereft of more noble vocabulary in that moment as I drove to the hospital. The day before, we had celebrated the birth of my niece, a beautiful, healthy, nine-pound baby girl. Her parents were overjoyed. Her grandparents were over the moon. My own kids were so excited to meet her, they had gone to the store earlier in that day to buy baby toys. And then the phone call, suddenly, unexpectedly, bafflingly, that beautiful little girl was gone, despite still being at the hospital, despite all the doctor's efforts to save her, with no apparent cause, no explanation, no rhyme or reason, she simply died. Later, we would learn that a rare genetic disorder was the culprit, but that night as I drove to the hospital, my anger was fixed on the culprit behind the culprit. Damn you, death. This kind of tragedy shouldn't happen. Not just shouldn't in a modern medicine should prevent this kind of way. I mean shouldn't in a more fundamental sense. The world shouldn't be this way. This is unnatural. This is grotesque. This is broken. Sometimes in the face of loss, well-meaning people will say something like, death is natural. Death is a part of life. I understand the sentiment they're attempting to convey, albeit clumsily. But the death of a child, 
exposes that clumsy comfort for the lie that it is. No, death is not natural. No, death is not part of life. Death is an enemy. Death is an invader. Death is an alien, ugly thing. It is not native to this world. It is not part of the design. It is a breaking of the universe's blueprints, an overwriting of the original code of creation, an affront to God's good purposes for his good world. It is something that should not be. God created a good world without death, without sin, without decay. That world is now broken, almost beyond recognition. The whole creation groans, the Apostle Paul tells us, subjected to futility, waiting with eager longing for the revealing of God's children. Under the iron bands of the curse and fall and sin, all creation aches and strains, longing for the day when the should not be will finally no longer be. There should be no funeral homes. There should be no bereavement rooms in maternity wards. There should be no tiny caskets. And there should be no caskets at all, but there should never ever be such tiny infant-sized caskets. There should be no parents burying their hopes and dreams in such a small box. These are the symptoms of a world gone horribly wrong the groans of creation subjected to futility. Damn you, death. Sometimes it feels like it would just be easier to drown in despair down here in the valley of the shadow. But in the depths of darkness, there is a hope I hold on to. Death is, in fact, damned. Jesus disarmed death at the cross by paying the wages of our sins. He decisively defeated death on Easter morning when he broke down hell's gates from the inside and strode triumphantly out of the graveyard. Today, he reigns with his foot on Satan's neck, and all of the anguish in the world today is but death thrashing in its own death throes. One day, Jesus will come again in glory to finally expel the invader, to release creation from its bondage to futility, to rescue his children and restore God's good world once and for all. Jesus' resurrection will overtake all of the sadness and suffering in this blighted universe. All will be new and all shall be well. Death will die and Jesus will win. Death, you are damned. And this means, last paragraph here, this means that this heartbreakingly tiny casket is only temporary. So we committed her body to the ground, not as an act of finality, but of hope. We commit her body to the ground like a seed, committed to the garden soil, because just like Jesus rose, one day she will rise. Like a seed planted in a garden, one day she will bloom. One day there will be no more funeral homes or bereavement rooms or tiny caskets. One day every grave of God's people will become a garden, like the first grave on that first Easter morning. One day Easter morning will come for her and for me and for all who are held in the nail-scarred grip of redeeming love.
O death, where is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, every grave into gardens.